Welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Sunday Wire, the third and final segment of Overdrive this week, episode 121, streaming out live on the alternate current radio network and at 21stCenturyWire.com. Thank you so much for joining us. Fantastic segment before the break with our last guest, independent journalist Eva Bartlett. She's uh, she's done a lot and seen a lot on the ground in the Middle East. Tremendous uh, work as a reporter, uh, as an independent journalist. So there's a link to her uh, blog from our show page. Now, our next guest is a uh, special contributor, an analyst, a writer, uh, and a sharp political mind. He is a regular contributor and writer at 21stCenturyWire.com. His name is Stuart J. Hooper. You've probably seen his work, especially this week. He's written some fantastic articles, uh, which we have up on 21st Century Wire. Stuart, thank you for joining us this week. Thanks for having me again, Patrick. Great to be back. So, Stuart, you've been a little bit busy this week. I noticed uh, there's quite a few pretty powerful stories that you posted up on the website. I mean, let's just lead it off. There was a huge story that you came out of the gates with uh, probably about a week ago. Um, and, you know, a lot of people are talking about potential for tur- a Turkish ground invasion. Turkey, there's a lot of major military assets uh, that Turkey has in place on the border. This is something that one of the Russian ministers, anyway, had pointed out from the satellite photography and other intel that this might be imminent. Let's just roll this quick RT clip just to set this conversation up. Audio clip 11, Turkey's ground forces. Let's roll this. News to start with, uh, we just talked about the Russian Defense Ministry warning that Turkey could be preparing for an invasion of Syria. We have grounds to suspect Turkey is gearing up for an invasion. We have traced growing signs of stealth preparations by Turkish troops for military action in Syria. All right, well, Artie's General Hawkins uh, is with me now. So they just talked about it. We broke this about last hour. Um, details coming in. Still a bit sketchy, but it was after the defense ministry spoke earlier on in Moscow. Take us through what they had to say. Well, as we heard there, the, uh, the, the press secretary of the Ministry of Defense, Major General Ilkonashenkov, has cited uh, evidence of this potential growing threat of Turkish military action uh, on Syrian uh, soil. And the evidence he cites for that is, of course, uh, today's earlier news of this banning of that Russian observation flight. Now, what this means under the open skies, treaty. Countries can, uh, that are signatories to this pact can actually fly over each other's territory uh, to observe borders, to observe uh, military deployments, etc. Mm. Uh, now, Turkey has refused uh, that Russian flight uh, to observe that very volatile cross-border zone. He also cites last Monday's incident of the shelling of the Syrian uh, village, you may remember, uh, in North Latakia by uh, Turkish forces. He says that these sorts of incidents are becoming more and more frequent, more and more common. Uh, and uh, he cites this as an active uh, uh, preparation uh, of uh, some sort of incursion onto Syrian mm. territory. And the banning of this uh, flight you're talking about just then could be basically to stop the uh, flight seeing what was going on below. That's the idea behind it, was it? Absolutely, and this possible yeah, incursion. Yeah. And it, it's not the first time that uh, uh, Turkey has had desires or, or aims to cross over the border, is it? This wouldn't be a new thing. Well, we've got to remember, Kevin, the whole uh, area is, is a, a tinderbox. It's so volatile. There's mm. so many groups here at play, and it's hard to get concrete and verifiable information out uh, at any given time. Uh, last Tuesday, we received a video from some Kurdish groups that, of course, control that whole northern area uh, in Syria, uh, alleging uh, Turkish tanks and Turkish bulldozers uh, building fortifications on the Syrian side of the border. Let's take a look at that video now. Okay, coming back. Okay, so that was those were crowds of people. I believe they're sort of protesting. Maybe they're a Kurdish, I believe, protesting the Turkish bulldozers building trenches, fortifications. I'm not sure what I was looking at there, Stuart, but that uh, seems to be a little bit of activity uh, from Turkey. Are we looking at a possibility of another similar to what we saw in uh, northern Iraq before Christmas? I don't think um, Russia would have issued a warning specifically saying that they think Turkey is preparing for an invasion unless they were serious about it. Mm-hmm. So I think we should be taking this very seriously ourselves. And we had the incident of the Turkish shooting down that Russian jet just last year. 
So they have proven that they are ready and willing to pursue the aggressive course of action. Yeah, you know, it's undeniable. I mean, uh, the, there's also the, what they spoke about in that segment, which is basically banning flights. And you have to, you know, and you pointed out this in previous articles, I think, as well, that there was an agreement, a deconfliction agreement between uh, all the parties flying in this region. And so t- Turkey is already kind of almost uh, backing off a little bit on this bilateral agreement by banning Russian observation flights. Uh, along that part of the border. Yeah, and the interesting thing is the major general who presented this announcement said that if someone in Ankara thinks that they can actually hide something by cancelling this flight, then they're unprofessional because obviously the Russians are an advanced military, got a lot of uh, modern technology. They can still see what's going on on this border and it's worrying them. Mm Mm-hmm. And so, so what, are, what what would the ramifications be if if there was a Turkish invasion into Syria? I mean, this is kind of, in a way, this I, I look at this as kind of an act of desperation on one level, uh, but on another level, it's kind of taking it to a higher level, isn't it? it, it not not yeah, only it's that, definitely, yeah. like you said, it could just be an act of desperation. But what it will do is take everything to a higher level. Um, you know, RT's Peter Lavelle host of uh, Crosstalk. Yep. He's posted on Facebook that he believes we're now closer to World War Three than ever before. Oh, my goodness. Wow. So all the, all the pieces are in position to head in that direction. Yeah, and, and the problem, it, it, what, what is the big problem here? Is it that Turkey's a NATO country and that Turkey's almost baiting some sort of a reaction and if anybody hits Turkey, then NATO can, can basically cry uh, Article Five is is this is this the big danger point, or is it going to come from somewhere else? Do you think? Yeah, I think it probably is that they're just trying to bait something here, because obviously NATO's treaty does not cover supporting allies who attack others, or at least it shouldn't cover that. Mm-hmm. So, like you said, it could just be them attempting to bait somebody into action. Yeah, that, if you look at the, if you look at, I mean, from what I can see anyway, look at a lot of these sort of mini skirmishes and situations, it's, uh, that would be the sort of first most desirable option is to bait somebody into, uh, some sort of, um, you know, irrational yeah, um, response. Story. Yeah. There was another story over the weekend, I think, before I posted this one on Monday where the Russians said that they had evidence that Turkey was using artillery to shell Syrian territory. So again, that could be them looking for some sort of reaction from the Russian air force, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So so that's that's kind of a dangerous thing that everyone needs to keep their eyes on. Um, and, and mind you, Stuart, so this is all happening. At the same time, this is all happening. Um, their Syria, Syrian army making huge advances in Aleppo, uh, Russian Air Force making huge advances in terms of uh, pushing back ISIS positions from airstrikes, right? So this is this happening with Turkey, and the timing of it is incredible because it's as so much progress is being made on the part of Damascus, uh, then this is also looming as a huge, basically, cloud over the situation. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of progress being made by the Russians in particular. Uh, The big story that I posted this week was that they had hit 900 targets in just three days. Wow. And they essentially sent a hell of a lot of the militants back to the Turkish border, Mm -hmm. which is quite an interesting note. Because as we've just heard, Turkey says it's preparing to, well, the Russians say Turkey is preparing to invade now. So perhaps Turkey is going to claim that the Syrian state is failing to uphold its security obligations, endangering international peace and security, and then hence it will not be an invasion, it will be a defensive action. Right, yes, that that makes sense. I can t- I can see that. I don't think that's going to fly <laughs> in the long term, but in the short term, I can see them trying that out as a kind of uh, you know pu- public relations uh, justification. But th- this is the same. It's a similar sort of argument, Stuart, that they they have with the safe zones uh, that, that that they need to create safe zones in order to protect the refugees. But but what are the safe zones? Effectively, no fly zones. Effectively, safe zones for terrorists as well. 
So I see this is the same. It's kind of like, what is this? Kind of like, it's like an inversion of logic, isn't it? It's, it's this, I see this pattern constantly. I, is this the position they're in, Stuart? They've got nothing left but inverted sort of logic. or inver- yeah. yeah. As you were saying in the previous segment, I just caught the end of it, this whole Syrian intervention project has gone very sour for the people who instigated it in the first place. And it's uh, interesting that the terrorists are actually running back to Turkey because the Turkish border has obviously been a very, uh, let's say, free movement zone yeah. for terrorists. Yeah, <laughs> They've been out yeah. of there with oil that's been stolen from Syria and sold in Turkey. So it's essentially like they're going home in some respect. Yeah, yeah. So it, it is a kind of a free for all. The main, the main free for all portals are really the the. I think it's the area above Aleppo, and then over uh, towards um, Kobani, and in that direction. Uh, so the the Kurds have managed to reinforce certain sections of that border, but there's huge sections that are totally wide open. So you've got weapons, you've got drugs as well, narcotics, you've got human trafficking. And, and, and the other thing, Stuart, that, that's not talked about, there's a huge human traffic, human trafficking component to the so-called refugee, uh, crisis. Um, and there is, uh, from all the reports I've read, there is an organized cr- criminal element in it, uh, in, especially with regards to Turkey. So this isn't just a refugee thing, like, you know, a humanitarian thing. This is, we've got human trafficking, we've got narcotics, we've got weapons, uh, we've got other things, you know, so it's, it's not, the narrative isn't just, you know, nice and simple. This is a really kind of, it's turned, it's turned into a real dirty enterprise, is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It wouldn't surprise me at all that human traffickers are taking advantage of such a chaotic situation. Yeah, I, I, that's what I saw in Lebanon too. Um, there was a lot of, there, there was a human trafficking problem, uh, and, and a, you know, a child trafficking problem as well via some of the refugee, um, camps there a couple of years ago. So this is, this has been covered in the Daily Star and other uh, media outlets as well. So, um, let me just check here. Okay. So we're going to, let's, Let's move on quickly now. Stuart, there's an article you posted about eyewashing. Okay. This got my attention. Uh, what is eyewashing and how does it relate to this story? And then I've got a clip I want to play you. Eyewashing is a practice of the CIA that has just been uncovered and essentially involves the very top elites in the CIA only sending accurate information to a very small number of other CIA employees and disinformation to all other employees. So in the CIA itself, it's incredibly compartmentalized and only a few people, literally a handful of people, ever know what is actually going on. Uh, So this ex-CIA officer explains it like this. If you have a classic garden variety source and all of a sudden he gains access to truly sensitive information what you might have to do is send a false communication saying that the guy got hit by a bus and died. So then a large number of people aware of the source suddenly think he's dead, but the continuing reporting on the source and from that source gets put into a very closed compartment that only a few people would know about. So that's pretty much how that works. And as you can imagine, it allows the elites in the CIA to get away with a hell of a lot of nasty things. So, so that's basically you're talking about compartmentalization. So, information it's not just information on a need to know basis. I think people are familiar with that. Oh, classified. This is classified. You don't need to know. But you're talking about giving false information out. Yes. To so this is beyond just you know levels of uh, security clearance, right? This, yeah, this, this is this is like, not saying oh that's classified. This is saying that doesn't exist. Right. And so, so tell me, how would this, so if this, this is a reality, okay? This isn't something we're making up. This is a reality within the intelligence agencies. So, by extension, Stuart, if I was working for CNN or Fox or Glenn Beck or whatever, and I have my sources within the CIA, then, then that's eyewashing could be extended right throughout the media, right? Definitely. 
So, so I mean, how would that play out? I mean, what would be what t- typical scenario there? Um, well, the CIA might just they they can now put out whatever they want, and it doesn't have to be true. They can just feed information to reporters, and they'll take it. And as you said, they'll think they're really happy because they've got their CIA source. But in actual fact, well, it's all lies. And, and their CIA. And the important thing here, Stuart, is their CIA source might think that what they're telling their media is is probably more or less true as well, right? Yes, even the source itself will think that it's true. So this is kind of like something that we've been we've been talking about forever. You know, um, one of the chief receptacles of uh, of this disinformation is basically the department that's in charge of North Korea. Okay, so this week on the news, I think I was Bar- I, I, I'm looking at Barbara Starr, uh, who looks a lot like um, that. Uh, crisis actor i forgot her name but um so barbara Starr. so she's got new images that suggest that suggest that north korea uh a, a launch a missile launch is imminent okay some inter intercontinental ballistic missile launch image because they have images that suggest not that confirm just 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 suggest so here's Here's how it played out on CNN. I just want to get your your general commentary in terms of so Barbara Starr has got the same sources that you're talking about that we're talking about, Stuart. So go ahead and roll audio clip six. Listen to this. This is from this week, actually. Roll that. We're following some breaking news here in the Situation Room. New satellite images of a top-secret facility in North Korea show what appears to be preparations for a rocket launch. Many analysts fear the reclusive regime could be developing a missile capable of carrying a nuclear warhead as far as the United States. Our Pentagon correspondent Barbara Starr has been tracking the latest developments. Barbara, what are you learning? Wolf, tonight, with those new satellite images emerging, the pressure is mounting on North Korea from around the world to give up this launch. Don't count on them to do that. North Korea could launch a long-range rocket in a matter of days. Pyongyang calls it an Earth observation satellite on top of a rocket. Few are buying it. This is an attempt to build an intercontinental ballistic missile that is capable of carrying a nuclear warhead to the United States or other destinations. Nations across the region, including the U.S., on high alert. The U.S. has advanced Aegis radar warships and aircraft stations. The Air Force Cobra Ball spy plane like this one and these U.S. radars in Japan also on watch. The first sign on the launch pad may be fueling of the rocket. Once that happens, launch is imminent. China, one of the few governments North Korea talks to, is weighing in. We hope the North Korean government will exercise caution and restraint in their actions. They shouldn't act in a way that could escalate tensions on the peninsula. The Secretary General of the United Nations called for the launch to be scrapped. International shipping across Asia has been warned in detail of the path of the potential satellite launch. After launching from North Korea, the first stage is supposed to drop off into the Yellow Sea west of South Korea. Then a shroud covering the satellite will drop into the East China Sea. And the second stage is planned to fall into the Philippine Sea before the satellite goes into orbit. Defenses are being deployed in Japan, which is not along the path. Patriot missiles are in place to shoot it down if it goes off course. In Guam, the U.S. has longer-range missile defenses called FAD, which could also be called into action. Wolf, let's take a look at some of those images, satellite images, just into CNN a short time ago from a commercial satellite passing overhead. Also seeing activity at the site, seeing evidence that the North Koreans are beginning the process of trying to get ready for this launch, possibly even fueling activity. This launch could come as soon as Sunday night in Washington. Barbara, thanks very much. Thanks, Barbara. Thanks, Barbara. Thanks, Wolf. So Sunday night, that's tonight, Stuart. So actually, uh, according to uh, North Korean uh, Central Time in Pyongyang, uh, this should already have happened by now, right? 
should already be in the air. So they're claiming that uh, North Korea is uh, launching a satellite, but it's not really a satellite. It's a, it's a it's a it's a missile with a nuclear warhead disguised as a satellite. This is basically the narrative that CNN's running. So, but she, she's got her sources. Okay, her sources are telling her that this is what it is. Okay, and so she goes and she tells that to Wolf, and Wolf tells that to the world, and this is how the information gets out, Stuart. So, uh, could is it possible we might have a fundamental <laughs> flaw at the source of the information, maybe? Yeah, it's possible that we have a fundamental flaw with any anonymous source that is now ever quoted in any mainstream news article. Yeah. Because you're never going to know now if those sources are actually sending us legitimate information or not. And as we've just explained, the source itself might not even know that. Yeah, and so that's it's normally the case. Dangerous position in some ways. That's normally the case, actually. That's normally the case. But they guard those sources with their life. In fact, there's some people, Stuart, that will rise up their ranks in media because they've been maybe chosen by someone within the establishment. So they'll target certain journalists, right? They'll, they'll target them early in their career. They'll give them a little, throw them a little bone. And that, that journalist will then be the keeper of the source. And then they'll go with the source, and that source helps them in their career. It gets them promoted, actually. I mean, you can rise through the ranks of mainstream media if you have good sources. So this, in this way, Stuart, and, and I might get your commentary on this, but isn't this a good way for the establishment to basically get control of key players within the media by, by creating this kind of source yeah, relationship? They do it in a very scary way really they can maybe perhaps find somebody within their own organization say the cia somebody who maybe asks a few too many questions but they get him on side make him feel like he's doing the right thing and then they just feed this guy consistently wrong information which he then sends to the journalists mm-hmm. and you yeah. have this vicious circle of lies yeah and, and a lot of confusion in the public sphere as to what's really going on and and I think we see we see that quite a lot of that we see a lot of confusion we see a lot of mixed messages we see narratives changing constantly and it's all coming from these so-called sources through mainstream media so I don't know it seems to me like that's what's going on but uh, yeah, and, um, what a former CIA inspector general said was that this is playing with fire because. You're putting people's lives at risk in some cases is by spreading this kind of disinformation. Um, one example I cited in the article was that uh, a senior CIA, a senior Al-Qaeda member, sorry, was killed by tribal violence. That's what the CIA told everybody within the CIA, except a very select few. And that guy had actually been killed by a drone strike before the drone strike uh, program was public. Mm. That's very believable. I, I, I can believe that. That so similarly, Stuart, you could also say that uh, a major ISIS leader or a jihadi John was killed in a drone strike uh, when he wasn't when he wasn't really killed in a drone strike, or maybe he was killed two years yes. earlier, right? But if they admitted he was killed two years earlier, that would basically defy the, uh, the 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 videos that he supposedly starred in that would throw the timeline off for instance i'm just giving an example so there's a lot of there's a lot of potential choke points there for you know disinformation yeah and another guy stephen aftergood he's a government secrecy expert at the federation of american scientists said when you introduce falsehoods into the communication stream, then you can destabilize the whole system of intelligence oversight in compliance with law. So what we have here is an accountability nightmare. Mm. Yeah, and it extends extends indefinitely, and I'll prove it to you right now. So freedom of information requests. This is something that, well, supposedly anyway, most things, we, we can go to put a, a FOIA request in for information about just about anything. Uh, now, whether you get back the document that's not fully redacted with black lines through it, which happens sometimes, uh, but if you're in Britain or the United States, you can put in a FOIA request on a number of things. Now, what about the CIA? Well, they've got a lot of probably a lot of documents in their archives that might be very interesting, right? And this might go back quite a few decades, I would imagine. And there's a lot of stuff there that's paper. 
you know, it hasn't been digitized yet. So what do they have? Uh, they have a couple of viewing stations. If you do get a successful FOIA application, you can go into a little cubicle. I'm not sure where it is. And I think there's two viewing stations. Uh, and so I don't even think you can do it. Someone can go and look at it and then print out the documents and maybe redact them. I'm not sure, but it's completely tied down. And this, here's a fundamental question. You know, at some point in the future, how long can you keep secret secret? In other words, if, if people find out what really happened and, and it has shocked people in recent years to find out certain things have happened like the Gulf of Tonkin incident or uh, the overthrow of Mohammed Mossadegh in Iran and some of these other things have slowly been declassified and so forth. So audio clip number four, roll this, listen to this. This is one guy who's basically, it's his life's crusade. He wants to basically open up the CIA archives. And so this is a new segment that he, he appeared on this week. Go ahead and roll audio clip four. Listen to this guy. Thousands of top secret documents are stored in the archives of America's Central Intelligence Agency well out of reach of the public, but even the CIA is obliged to give up its secrets eventually after they've been kept for 25 years. There's a catch, though. These declassified documents are far from being just a click away. They're accessible only from these four offline computers of the CIA archive in Maryland. They can only be printed to, not copied to a flash drive, but one freedom of information activist has made it his mission now to change all that. Michael Best is doing his best to raise money on the crowdfunding website Kickstarter to get a special computer and scanner to do the job and systematically yeah, scan and archive all those declassified files. Huge task and put them on a web available for everyone. He told us that state bureaucracy often stops the truth getting out. This is one of those instances where the government's own bureaucracy is shooting it in the foot. Um, you know, I, I certainly wish that that CIA had already put all of these materials online and that the the finding aid was more comprehensive. It's it's one of those instances where, you know, it doesn't really help anyone. Unfortunately, judging from the the briefings they filed in in court and and their statements on the the matter, even though the documents have been declassified, they still need to be reviewed individually and cleared one last time before they can be put online or released through the Freedom of Information Act. In the meantime, we're not really getting anything in the declassified documents currently problematic to access as apparently a deliberate reason for the process being so difficult. Okay, so uh, coming back. So, so Stuart, so th- this is a kind of a fundamental problem here. You know, our governments are constantly telling us, Stuart, that, uh, well, if you haven't done anything wrong, then you've got nothing to worry about, you know, when, it's, when it comes to sort of having access to all your data, uh, all your phone conversations, all your social media, and so forth, right? Your emails, uh, everything, text messages, you name it. They want access to it. They're going to keep it. So if you, got, if you haven't done anything wrong, then you've got nothing to worry about. So, but unfortunately, this mantra doesn't extend to uh, the intelligence services, you know, because we can't really see what they've done even 50 years ago. Because, well, uh, quite frankly, what what would people think if they could see it? I mean, I would imagine there's some dirty laundry in there. Yeah, and um, no wonder it takes them so long to actually process all this stuff because they probably have to actually figure out which one of the documents is the legitimate document, and which is the disinformation document that went to most of their employees. Ah, good point. So, so even if you did, so, so even if you did have access, or even if you could, you know, put a FOIA request in, what you're getting back, there's no guarantee that what you're getting back is the real deal, right? Exactly. That's the problem. And an interesting point that you can take from this story overall is that skeptics often say that no part of the government could ever pull off a giant monumental conspiracy because too many people would know about it and somebody would talk about it. Well, this just completely crushes that argument because it shows us the extreme extent that compartmentalization still exists within the modern American government. And I guarantee you this happens in many more agencies than just the CIA. Yeah, I I think you're right. I think you're right. So compartmentalization is institutionalized, is what you're saying. There's a lot of people who... So so normally, Stuart, when you bring up the 
you know, the concept of compartmentalization, people will look at this in terms of kind of like a case-by-case basis. In other words, yeah, there's we have an event like, uh, let's say, uh, a 9-11 or a Gulf of Tonkin incident and or an Operation Ajax or something like this, and they'll look at it like on a case-by-case basis. So they'll think, oh, there's compartmentalization in the operation, pull off that specific event, right? But what we're talking about here is bigger. This is, there's compartmentalization, which which is basically hardwired into institutions, right? This is the permanent compartmentalization. Yep, and it does it in such a way where it is literally only the elite of the elite that ever know what is really going on. And that is not good for a country that's supposed to be a a, uh, democracy. Yeah, so to hell with transparency. That is what really happens uh, in in the CIA, Probably, and probably all the other the, uh, members of the six, the six eyes intelligence Co- international cooperative or the nine eyes to, uh, intelligence international cooperative. And those who think that that's out of a James Bond film only, go ahead and Google it. Go ahead and Google six eyes, uh, international intelligence agreement. It is not out of a, it isn't a James Bond movie, but it's in reality too. So there is a kind of a hydra, uh, that is working together, uh, between these certain allied agencies and it's real. It's just not a conspiracy theory. So go ahead and Google it. They, they talk about it all the time on, on the news thing, but they'll just mention it quickly. Six eyes or nine eyes. And then they'll move on. The, uh, the, the military experts on, on CNN or Fox. So if you listen closely, you can hear this stuff. Uh, but it rarely gets any play. Um, and I, I think people are just generally unaware that there is a level, even above the national level, Stuart, um, of international cooperation between intelligence agencies. So, and that's, that's quite a high level one. And, and I'm sure, Stuart, there's disinformation running between them as well as real information. Yeah, it's a real mess. And you could probably even say that intelligence agencies don't even specialize in intelligence. They mainly specialize in deception. Yes, good point. Very dangerous entities. Good point. Yeah, they don't. They, 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 very good point. They specialize in deception. So they, they, they run as much disinformation as they do information, basically. Or more, yeah. more disinformation, maybe. So. Yeah, probably more. And that's why anytime you hear certain things being blamed, potentially not them, it could be something else in any aspect of like an event or media. Yeah. Yeah. So that's pretty, uh, well, that's the way it is, folks. That is the way it is. That's the way it goes. Um, so what's the, the other story is, um, what's this business about put, uh, giving credit? So taking credit for the reduction of ISIS forces. Is, so the West is taking credit, but not giving any credit to, to Russia, who's actually hitting the targets. How does this story, well, explain the story to us. Yeah, so um, a, the U.S. just released an intelligence report claiming that the number of ISIS fighters has decreased from a top approximate number of 31,000 to 25,000. And the main reason I cite for this is the U.S.-led military campaign. And the Mao reports exactly this. Ground fighting efforts by coalition partners of the United States, as well as endeavors by U.S.-backed Iraqi security forces, tribal militias, and don't forget those moderate opposition groups in Syria have also contributed to the progress in the fight against ISIS. I mean, have you heard anything so ridiculous? Yeah, uh, well, that's kind of continuing on the general theme. Uh, Only certain people are allowed to fight ISIS, uh, and certain people aren't allowed, and that goes for taking credit as well. But, um, you know, from, here's the bigger story with regards to ISIS that I'm also understanding. Um, the, in, in terms of the total number of terrorists, let's say, uh, running about in, uh, Syria specifically, um, I, from what I'm gathering from reports, ISIS is not the, the majority of that. They're only a, a component of it. 
but the West has latched on to ISIS. They've because of the success in in the branding of ISIS. So they've been very good at marketing this brand. And most of the market, the biggest marketing channel, Stuart, for ISIS and for getting this brand recognition and getting all their videos has been the Western mainstream media. They've they, they've advertised ISIS. They've promoted their image. Uh, they've done it better than anybody. Um, in, in fact, without the Western mainstream media, I don't think ISIS would have taken off the way they have. You know, that's the way yes, I'm seeing it. Advertising, um, essentially. Yeah, it's a free. Yeah, so they're piggybacking basically on the uh, Western mainstream media. Yeah, I mean, you always hear a lot about ISIS is so social media savvy. They've got magazines and all this kind of stuff, but. I don't think you can really find that stuff unless you go and seek it out. And the only reason you go and seek it out is because you saw about them on Western mainstream media in the first place, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a marketing, it's a, it's a launching pad, basically. So uh, um, ACR, the alternate current radio, ACR chat room, I'm told, is blowing up. Literally, it's blowing up. I've got an image here of an oil well fire somewhere, and that's supposed to be the ACR chat room, so... Uh, it's blowing up over there at ACRs. That's where the chat room is located, folks. It's on the alternate current radio network.com's website. And, uh, interesting. Very interesting. Just got a message there. Ted Turner's grandson. Wow. <laughs> I don't want to get into that. Um, so Stuart, uh, we're going to wrap up the segment in a minute though, but, uh, what, what, what are we looking forward to in the next couple of weeks? What stories do you think are hot right now? What's on the horizon? Uh, what's some of the stuff that, that you think is going to start kicking in in the next few weeks? Well, you really want to watch what these Russian commanders are pointing out, what they are seeing, because they really have no reason to lie in this. They certainly don't want to get into a world war, that's for sure. So let's see what they say in relation to this whole Turkish situation in particular. And also what a 21st Century Wire has been covering quite a lot, the Zika virus. Mm, yes. A lot of tweets and Facebook posts about the Olympics that are supposed to be happening there. Apparently that's still going ahead and officials are saying, oh, it's no big deal, it's no problem. Well, I'm not so sure about that one. Well, I'm glad you brought up the Zika virus, Stuart, because I was gonna, I was gonna talk about that in the first hour, but it got overshadowed by, um, some of the, uh, uh, the, the, the GOP, um, US presidential cycle, but, okay, Zika, the, uh, now, we, we were one of the first alternative you know, media, full stop. We were the first people to basically ask the fundamental question on January 25th when the story kind of broke. We said, is, we cannot see any evidence presented of a link between the Zika virus and the outbreak, supposed outbreak of microcephaly in all these babies in Latin America and specifically Brazil and El Salvador, okay? So that's a fundamental question because without that link, you don't have a pandemic. I mean, you don't have, they're calling for women to not have children for two years. I mean, that's a pretty big deal. Uh, I've never seen that before. I've never seen a government tell women to stop having kids. This to me is, a, is, is, is huge, okay? So if it's such a big story, Stuart, wouldn't you want to establish that, that, that base link between the mosquito-borne virus or disease and the actual outbreak of microcephaly, right? That would, be, mm -hmm. that would be common sense, but I didn't see it. And so we asked that question first. And John Rappaport, there's a link to his article, which I, we published yesterday, uh, has done a great... And this is John Rappaport is... His his main thing is he's an investigative health journalist, okay, and he's been nominated for a Pulitzer Prize, so he knows his stuff. And Rappaport said that, and one of the things I said last week is I said I bet you that this has something to do with something they're giving pregnant women in terms of some sort of pharmaceutical project uh, product or some sort of injection. I said that last week or the week before, I can't remember. Okay, so. And because that's really close to the source, Rappaport says, of th there's no longer, they've revised their figures, Stuart. It's not 4,000 cases of microcephaly in Brazil. It's now down to 400. And out of that 400, 
that the, according to health officials, only 17, only 17 out of the 400 may have a link between Zika virus and microcephaly in babies. I mean, that's a huge climb down from when this story broke like two weeks ago. I mean, I mean, this is, there's no, from a scientific point of view, Stuart, that's like, there's nothing there. There's no link. There's no conclusive. There's not even a link. If it is, it's a tenuous theoretical link, right? Mm-hmm. And one of the um, stories I published on that was the fact that somebody pointed out that where some genetically modified mosquitoes were released. In Brazil? Uh, Yes, in Brazil. Yeah, and that's close. That's close to where the supposed outbreak is. Yeah, it's like ground zero of the outbreak. So that's something that people might want to look into. So, so explain this. So, GMO, and I know, I know, Bill Gates. Bill Gates is invested in the GMO mosquito as well. He's one of the main. He's put a, it over a million into that project, basically. So, so what happened? They they released GMO. Why did they release GMO mosquitoes into? into the Brazilian environment? Uh, the original reason was to lower the levels of mosquito-borne diseases because the males would mate with the females. The males were the only ones that were genetically modified and released. And then there was some sort of genetically modified coding in their DNA where their offspring would die before they could then breed themselves. Mm. Okay, and so that's, uh, yeah, that's kind of dangerous, I think, um, you know, releasing that into the, oh my goodness, into the environment, wow. The, the, the amount of knock-on effects, potentially, you can't even calculate them, actually. I mean, even with insects, you know, insects are involved in so many different, uh, so many different things, uh, and they're, they're in touch yeah. with plants. The ecosystems. Yeah, I mean, this could, if you introduce something like that, like a Franken mosquito into an ecosystem, you don't know where the ripple effect is going to end up. I mean, it could be, who knows, you know, way, way far down the line. It could even be like what you're, what that article suggested, um, that Stuart is that potentially that ripple effect could be, uh, some sort of, uh, health defect. You know, from some sort of genetic, mod- genetically modified inbreeding gone wrong, some DNA being. Yeah, passed. well, apparently the die off of the mosquitoes that was programmed into their genes would only happen if a certain antibiotic wasn't present in the environment. But the problem is that antibiotic can show up in nature, in the soil, in surface waters, and in foods. And that could potentially push up the survival rate of the mosquitoes they release to like 15%. So then what you're left with is a situation where there are 15% more disease-spreading mosquitoes than there were before the release of the GMs. Wow. That is a very dodgy business. That's all we can say. Very dodgy business indeed. So that you need to really do that in a controlled environment, and we do live in a time where that would be possible. It would probably cost a lot of money, but you should do it in a controlled environment, like a giant enclosed greenhouse where you can properly test it. Yeah, instead of just like releasing it into Brazil, basically into the Amazon rainforest, yeah. kind of irresponsible. Um, I think I think those people should be uh, that should be investigated. But will it? We don't know. We don't think so. We don't think so. The pharmaceutical industry is very powerful. And uh, I don't think this, well, you'd probably have to sue them. Uh, yeah, with that, as with the CIA thing, is that we basically live in an era where accountability is completely missing from pretty much all the conversations. So we need to find a way to bring accountability for these companies and these people back into the conversation. And they're also, you know, what, what's other interesting, I'll end it on this point, I'll get your comment on this, Stuart, but the when I was reading about the vaccines for the Zika virus, immediately as the Zika, the Zika craze began, uh, calls were saying, oh, we need a vaccine, we need a vaccine, and we saw the people coming on, the CDC guys are on TV, plus the phar- big pharma guys are on, and they're calling it an, a medical arms race. This is the words I take, I've taken their words. Wow. <laughs> a medical arms race to get to a Zika vaccine before it's too late. Right? And so, 
in India, a firm this week announced they have a vaccine for the Zika virus. Now, whether that will get adopted or not is another question. The the Western ones, we're told, uh, are going to take, they're going to need a year or something to develop the Zika vaccine. Meanwhile, Stuart, what is the actual risk of, is it even the Zika virus that's causing microcephaly? Well, that's not an established conclusion. So what is this vaccine for? And what what's interesting is they started talking about Guillain-Barre syndrome. They they just quietly injected that into the sort of side effect here. And Guillain-Barre's is something you get from, guess what? It's a post-vaccine neurological disorder. How about that? So they've, they've managed to bind Zika with Guillain-Barre's, bring in a vaccine to the back door. And so if, if they do release this vaccine and a bunch of people get Guillain-Barre's, um, they'll sort of, it's been conflated as a kind of a symptom of the way it's, the way it's been positioned in the media, that, that'll be a symptom of you having the Zika virus. Or basically it's something you should expect, right? When in fact there's nothing natural about it, it's induced by, by a vaccine product. So this, the, I, I thought it was interesting they dropped in Guillain-Barre's, uh, into the conversation this week. It, it has no place in this conversation at all. I just thought it was rather convenient. Yeah, it's interesting. It would also be interesting to see uh, some statistics on these pharmaceutical companies' stock prices and how they have shifted since this outbreak began. Oh, yes, yes. That would be very interesting to look at. So whose stocks are surging? Well, we saw this with the uh, some of the war announcements with uh, Lockheed Martin and uh, some of the other Military yeah. industrial. You, you you talked about that in your article. Which some of those companies? What was the announcement that caused their stock to go up? It was the after the recent Paris attacks. Uh, these stocks went up in the defense sector. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, so immediately you can see. So this is the this is the crisis paradigm. This is the sort of politics by crisis. So crisis. Kind of sad, it's kind of a sad world to live in, really, that we have so many people profiting off the death and disaster of others. Not, not even, it, 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 not even that, Stuart. It, it, profiting off the threat of a dis, of a disaster, yeah, even worse, or the threat of death. So even if the death doesn't arrive in in some cases, the profits are still chalked up through the fear, uh, uh, through the fear campaign or the rule by crisis uh, uh, sort of narrative. So yeah, what it essentially does is give these people and companies an incentive to create an environment of fear. And I'm sure we can all imagine how they might go about doing that. So there should be, uh, so I'm going to throw out a radical idea here, Stuart. Um, <clears throat> do you, you remember how Max, Max Kaiser developed the Hollywood stock market? This is one of the things that made Max uh, a kind of a maverick in terms of the financial world. I don't think it took off in a big way, but it was, he, he wanted to create a Hollywood stock market with regards to, I think it was films and stuff like that. Um, so, you know, the cert, the hyping and the, 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 the volatility of a film as an asset, you know, as a commodity or whatever, right? So, yeah, I ran on that side before. Yeah, the Hollywood stock market. So what we need is basically a bolt-on. There should be a bolt-on to the, to the New York Stock Exchange or the World Stock Exchange, which is the, it's the fear stock exchange. So basically, this is just all driven by fear. So this is, uh, the value of everything is driven by the amount of fear. That's induced, and then you know profits can be recorded, uh, you know, respectively, uh, with regards to that. So a fear, fear, a crisis stock market, a fear stock market, or some sort of an index that that we can run and trade off of, maybe. <laughs> and derivatives make a lot of money on it. Can we repackage uh, Zika fear? So maybe we could package the fear of Zika, Ebola. And put that into, yeah, as a, as a kind of a sort of package, yeah, some sort of a, yeah, some sort of a collateralized debt obligation type thing. And we can bet on it. We can short Zika or we can, or we can bet on, you know, short Ebola or bet on Ebola and Zika and then maybe put out some other stuff, you know, swine flu and, uh, SARS and some other package. Yeah, it's like a mutual fund. Are we? I mean, we're pretty smart, aren't we, to figure this out? This is brilliant. So who would want, who would want to do that? Oh, that's depressing. Jeez. But there's some guy out there that probably wants to do that. Sadly, 
<clears throat> so anyway, um, Stuart, thanks so much for joining us again. Uh, look forward to seeing your work, Stuart J. Hooper, and the videos are, are fantastic as well. Uh, Stuart, you give a shout out. You got your YouTube channel, and also do do follow Stuart on Twitter. He's very active on Twitter. A lot of traffic comes through his Twitter Twitter feed there, and uh, and we link to that as well. But just, yeah, uh, just head to twitter.com or youtube.com slash Stuart J. Hooper, one word. Yeah, so if you're on Twitter, you want to be following Stuart for breaking news, along with 21 Wire and many others. But um, thank you so much, everybody, for, for being here this week. It's been a great, great episode today. Fantastic segment with uh, Eva Bartlett in the second hour. You do want to go back and listen to that after the show, uh, either on iTunes or here at 21st Century Wire on the Speaker Player. And also thank you to Stuart J. Hooper uh, from 21st Century Wire. We'll be looking forward to seeing what he produces in the coming week. We'll be back next week. We're going to cover next week. We're going to hit the migrant crisis in a big way way and i've got a very special guest who's going to come on and help us do that probably one of the one of the better commentators globally on this subject you'll find out who he is and what he and and his work later in the week uh before next week's show we're going to hit that because that i think is going to be one of the big big issues uh that's that's facing especially europe right now so we're going to hit that issue next week so also there's a link to donate to 21st century wire there's an image of a backpack and a camera we need your help. Uh, we want to go on the road. Uh, we're going to bring this show to you from the Middle East uh, in the spring. And we need your help to do that. So if you're listening and you support our work and you want to see that happen, just hit the donate button or hit the image of the backpack and the camera. We just need to get there and we'll be fine. We've got everything else taken care of. We just need to get there uh, to travel there, basically. So uh, once we do that, we'll be good. So... We need your help for that to happen. Do support us. Thank you to everybody else behind the scenes at, at uh, Alternate Current Radio Network and our chat room gang. Also, thank you very much and all of our listeners and readers at 21st Century Wire. Do tune in this week. We'll have more stories and breaking news for you. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen, signing out. <laughs>